0: my favorite thing about having my own company is getting to choose the people I work with. I love our team. I mean, we have all the right people in place. And yeah, it's a lot of fun.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangin. So let's get into it. Welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen. We're at Solar Power Northeast in Boston, and I'm excited to have our guest, Lauren Carson, who I've known actually for, we're trying to figure it out, seven or eight years. Lauren Carson has over eight years of experience in the solar industry. She currently is the CEO and founder of Connect Solar. Connect Solar is a leader in the liquidation wholesale business for electrical components and power generation equipment including solar transformers, electrical cable, and power generators. Connect Solar works with manufacturers and installers to move excess inventory to their customers that span the globe from local installers in Austin where they're based to farmers in Belize and hotels in Fiji. Welcome, Lawrence. Great to have you on the podcast. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about Connect Solar and your impressions of so far the conference in Boston, Solar Power Northeast? I know we're at the end of the conference and I appreciate you making time out of your busy schedule to Thanks, be on, this, on the podcast.
0: I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. This is actually my favorite show of all the shows, Solar Power Boston Northeast. So, It's been great, it's a lot of Northeast developers here, a lot of finance groups, and a lot of the people that I met early on in my solar career attend this conference when I lived in New York City. Connect Solar, we founded the company about four years. I actually founded the company with my sister and she's still in the company, one of my top salespeople. It's been a wild ride. Yes, (laughs) as any entrepreneur, yeah. yeah. We're a specialty distributor focusing primarily in solar. So I'd say about 90% of what we do is buying and selling solar panels, but we also do a lot of inverters and we've started dabbling in larger utility scale equipment, cable transformers and some of of those things.
1: And can you talk about who's like your normal sort of client base as a distributor, who you're normally working with?
0: So there's two sides of our business, finding equipment and finding stuff from our suppliers is as important as locating the customers to buy the panels. So we're, we're primarily selling to smaller installers. Our typical sale will be anywhere from a couple pallets up to a couple containers. Sure. We have also advised larger developers and EPC companies on panel purchases. We spend a lot of time talking to manufacturers about what supply they have available, what they have coming up. We really keep the pulse on canceled orders, inventory that gets stuck, manufacturers that go from one wattage to a higher wattage, So, they're not necessarily focused on moving the older inventory. So, we do advise a lot of developers on what's going on in the market and help them procure large orders of panels.
1: Definitely, that makes sense. And how do you guys differentiate yourself from other distributors in the market? It's, you know, it would be great to. Yeah, we get that
0: question a lot. So, there's some primary, like big differences between us and some of the larger distributors. We won't necessarily be a a solution for all equipment for one project. So you wouldn't come to us to get racking and BOS. And some of the top distributors have great service as far as drop shipping, everything you need into a residential installation. We don't provide that level of service, but we have extremely competitive pricing on Panels and inventory that we do offer. We can save people a significant amount of money on panels if it hits right.
1: Definitely, that makes sense. And I guess your primary office is in Austin, but I know you have people working, it seems like, all yeah. across the country. And then you're also, as we mentioned in your intro, do stuff internationally. Can you talk about? I know you've been talking about work you've been doing in Mexico and some other places sure. that we spoke before.
0: The solar panel market really is global. They're starting to become more. Factories are opening in the U.S. now as a result of the tariffs, but the majority of manufacturing and production is in Asia, places in Europe, really across the globe. So our mantra is we solve inventory problems. Sure. So in, we have an entity set up in Mexico. We have a warehouse in Tijuana. We have a warehouse in Panama. A lot of stuff may not be ideal for the U.S. market. We have places to move product, Latin America, primarily in the Caribbean.
1: That's pretty interesting. And you mentioned something that everyone in the solar industry has talked about, obviously the tariff on panels. Can you talk about
0: Yes, the tariffs <laughs> About the
1: tariff, just in general for our audience who we call mavericks? What happened last sure. year? And then like the impact that the tariff has had yeah. on the market?
0: 2018 was a rough year for distributors and people holding inventory such as Connect. And I know a lot of people got hit. So the 30% tariff on you know most foreign manufacturers hit in February. So I think the tariff was announced back in June of 2017. So everybody knew it was coming. So there's almost a panic. Everybody started buying up inventory, importing everything they could. We saw prices increase 20 to 30%, which was made for a really good 2017. But there's actually a graph of solar PV imports into the U.S. that I think Bloomberg put out, and it shows the ramp up of imports. As soon as the tariff was announced through 2017 and as soon as the tariff came into effect in February 2018, imports just fell off a cliff and we were dealing with historic oversupply in the market in the U.S. So panel sales were anemic at best throughout the rest of 2018. There was really like a three-part hit to the solar industry in 2018. We had the tariffs on imports But also the cut in corporate tax rate, that hurt the tax equity market, so that became softer. You had the solar tariffs, but then you had the steel and aluminum tariffs, which hit racking solar components, even for the U.S. manufacturers. So, yeah, 2018 was tough, but we see things kind of bottoming out now, beginning of 2019 and then the solar import tariffs going from 30% to 25% actually this month this in February. Month, February yeah. Yes, that's correct. People have been waiting for that to happen. And so now we're sure. starting to see demand pick back up again. The solar panel market really is a commodity. So supply, demand dynamics impacted by tariffs and local policy and even federal policy, it's Very, very apparent.
1: Definitely. I mean, this is really great insight, and it's interesting too. As well, now the ITC, the investment tax credit, is also stepping down this year for the first time from 30% to I think 26%, I forget the exact number. There's been talks about it just that they're going to pass some sort of 30% just going forward that the government is. But now you're also seeing. People rushing to get panels as well. And it's interesting, just to go to another point, too, that you made, Lauren, is like because of the change in the tax code, meaning that there's lower taxes. Then basically the tax equity market gets impacted because there's less taxable income mm-hmm. for companies and investors to basically use to take advantage of the 30% investment tax credit, five-year makers depreciation. So that's what you yeah. know. Lauren was talking about before. What are your expectations? This year, I know we talked briefly before about pricing, trends you're seeing. I know it's a combination of a couple questions. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about trends that you're seeing, like specifically in panels, maybe even what you're seeing potentially in pricing? Also, sorry, now I'm going into multiple, (laughs) multiple questions, how China actually impacts the solar market. Also, the tariff as well. Certain countries were exempt from it. So basically we're sure. seeing panel manufacturers build facilities in that in those mm-hmm. places or imports from those countries. Can you talk? Sure. I know that's like five questions <laughs> in one, so I apologize. This is really interesting. I'm trying
0: to think which question to answer first. So let's start <laughs> with this year. It seems like we've bottomed out in pricing. One of the things that caught me by surprise that I didn't expect from 2017 to where the imports ramped up and then they pretty much halted after the tariff came into effect or slowed down very much and then now they're picking back up again is there's almost like a pause in the import market. So when the tariff came into effect last year, we were looking at 330 watt, to 350 watt, 72 cell panels was kind of the norm. And then all of a sudden as imports have kicked back up again, everyone's looking at 370 to 385. There's 400 watt panels now, 72 cells. So a massive jump in efficiency. I think there's still a lot of people sitting on the older wattage panels And I think we're going to see those prices continue to go down for the more legacy wattage products. And then we're facing a global shortage in mono perk cells at the moment. So that higher wattage, 370 to 385, 390 watt product is starting to become scarce. A lot of the manufacturers we work with right now, they're sold out through the end of Q2. So if you're buying large supply, you can't even get it until Q3 And then I'm expecting, you know, history always repeats itself. So I mean, for those of us that have been in the solar market since 2012 when the cash grant turned into the ITC, there was a massive run on panels. Everyone was trying to buy their product to qualify for safe harbor. So I don't think we've heard yet from U.S. Treasury how they're going to handle the step down in the ITC, but I would expect there's some sort of safe harbor. So expect extremely strong demand in Q4 as people try to secure that ITC and their projects going forward. So that's what I see in demand in, in the U.S. market for 2019. I think there's also a slight shortage right now in black-on-black 60-cell product. So we're feeling that in the residential market. It's hard right now to find black-on-black over 300-watt panels, which is what everybody wants. Sure. Especially with space-constrained roofs. Oh, definitely. So that's happening. As far as international manufacturing goes, you know, when the, the original Chinese tariffs came on, It didn't take long for those factories in the Chinese companies to set up manufacturing in Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam, and we're starting to see that now. I think Seraphim just announced they're doing a factory in South Africa. There's a couple factories in Turkey, so more people are looking to OEM out of Turkey. India is exempt from the tariff, so we're seeing these Indian manufacturers pop up in the U.S. market. So it's interesting. I mean, I was an economics major in all the macroeconomic trends. We see them going into... (laughs) effect like right in front of our face on a daily basis in the solar market. So it's fun.
1: It definitely is. And can you talk about different panel technologies, new products, bifacial, split cell? Yeah,
0: SPI was fun this year. There's a lot of bifacial modules. So it's glass frames on both sides with the bifacial modules. That's pretty interesting because the wind loads that those can take. Sure. You know, we see the Florida market requesting those, also the Caribbean split cell panels. People are going to the split cell technology, which is contributing to the higher efficiency. It'll be interesting to see how efficiency continues to increase.
1: Sure. Yeah. That's a pretty big trend, efficiencies of the panel. And Mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing what you talked about, 325s to now 400. And, you know, I'm seeing as well in the development cycle now, everyone's adjusting their engineering yeah. to take advantage of these more efficient panels to get higher production yeah. from their solar systems to get obviously a higher return Yeah, the investors or owners of the project. definitely. So. And
0: we're just, this year for the first time, I saw a couple developers looking to go into kind of the lucrative markets, like the original markets, some of the PPAs that were put in place in 2012, 2013 in the mid-teens, And they're looking to repower these projects with higher efficiency modules. Sure. So that's kind of a fun trend.
1: Yeah, that is a pretty interesting trend. And can you talk about Buy America? I know when we spoke a few days ago, you were talking about that as something to talk about. (laughs) Obviously, Jinko Solar is now opening a production facility in Jacksonville. We're seeing some manufacturing in the U.S. Then, you know, what happened with Solar World? There's been a lot of interesting sort of dynamics to it.
0: Yeah, when I started Connect Solar four years ago, we had really good relationships with the U.S. manufacturers. At the time it was Cineva, no longer here. Solar World's no longer here, sadly. And then Mission Solar was relatively new on the scene, and they're doing really well out of Texas. And it's incredible the number of factories that are now opening up here since the tariff was announced and how quickly people moved into the U.S. market. So. Yeah, Sun has a factory in Sacramento that recently came up to speed. Yeah, Like you mentioned, Jinko, LG is opening a factory in Alabama this month. Hanwha has their factory coming online. Panasonic producing out of New York. Helene in Minnesota. So there's sure. multiple players and it should be interesting to see how that supply dynamic affects the market.
1: Definitely, and it's interesting too because I feel like it's more of a robotic process. I mean, I've been actually in India to one of our clients, who's a major PV module manufacturer. And it seems like there's not a lot of labor right now. It seems Mm. mostly it's done by robots, and it's pretty interesting to see how technology has advanced so much in a short period of time. So um, just kind of switching gears here, can you talk about your background, how you got into renewable, specifically solar, and then how that actually prepared you to start your own company?
0: Sure. So I started my career, I was at Lehman Brothers for the first five years of my career, and you wouldn't think that working at Lehman on the bond desk would have any sort of effect on solar, but there are so many similarities between the buy-sell side of doing that business and there's a lot of similarities into solar as we're buying and selling panels and dealing with brokers and the originators of products and then the end users of product. I find parallels all the time. So... After Lehman went under, so I was there till the end of that. And then I just had a great experience there. I learned so much, but quickly decided I wanted to be doing my own thing and started. uh, Clean Edison was a green job training company. We were taking advantage of a lot of the stimulus money going out trying to retrain workers. But it became apparent that we're training workers for jobs that weren't quite there yet. So it felt like you're training these workers to go out into an economy where it wasn't quite ready for them. Definitely. And one of the big areas we were working in was solar. So we were training in energy efficiency, solar, wind. And growing up in Boulder, Colorado, it was always very environmentally conscious. So I liked the idea of this greener renewable energy source, but also it really is a financial um, industry because there's large upfront capital investments and long-term cash flows. So I was able to take that and go back to my finance experience and started working at Exerta. Which is a New York boutique investment firm, and that was my first foray into solar.
1: I know that's actually how we met. At that time, I was actually at Solar City. You guys had an innovative at the time, like a prepay for the Massachusetts ESREC market, and I know you were involved a lot with the, you know, origination of potential projects and helping them, you know, move through that process. Yeah.
0: That was a lot of fun. That was right after the New Jersey SREC market crashed and the New Jersey SREC market, basically the PUC required utilities to buy a certain number of SRECs. But as soon as they hit that number, there was zero demand for the product. So it was really a binary, it was like a binary point on the supply demand curve. So it went from the cap to basically $0 and, and people got burned, investors got burned. And that memory was like burning strong in people. And then the Massachusetts market launched and it was complicated because they'd put all these levers in. There's the auction that if you couldn't sell your SREX, you'd go to the next year. I mean, there are a lot of different factors that boosted the SREX market in Massachusetts. And we had taken the time to understand that. And at the time when we got into it, we were really, I think the first liquidity source to finance Massachusetts SREX. You guys so, were, I
1: think, because I was yeah. actively reaching out to companies and yeah. definitely
0: Yeah, so yeah, it was my job to go find projects sure. and lock down these SRECs. And I think that's why I like this Boston conference, because a lot of those original contacts are, are <laughs> still, here in the market yes, definitely. Still.
1: And I think the other thing, too, with the Massachusetts SREC market, SREC 1, there was an artificial price floor. I know you talked about the auction, mm-hmm. which was related to the price floor, and that was created to basically try to fix the imperfection yeah of the New Jersey market, and then supply and demand would adjust accordingly based on over and under supply. And by the way, I could go into hours about this. (laughs) It's interesting because you also looked at projects as well, I think, during that time as well. I remember, I think you were in Hawaii for a certain period of time as well.
0: Yeah, I call it my first midlife crisis. After New York City for eleven <laughs> years, I, I like I just had enough one day, and I just decided to move out to Hawaii. At the time, Hawaii was a booming solar market for DG, and I went out there to work on developing projects. And then I was also working on an on-bill finance program with the state that never, unfortunately, didn't take off. But um, yeah, that's sure. I ended up in Hawaii, and that's where I got my first exposure to buying and selling. Stranded Equipment, (laughs) 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 which led me to uh, this podcast in Boston. So there you go.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's pretty amazing to hear your story. And it's funny because I've spent a lot of time with some of the people on the show, but then we don't know like the backstory. Can you talk a little bit more about the whole process of what made you want to start your own company? I know you partnered with your sister. Even a dynamic of having a family member, I actually as a kid worked for my dad's business. And mm. I know sometimes family members prefer not to have family. So can you talk a little bit first about what made you start a business? I know you mentioned obviously after Lehman Brothers, you did the training yeah. for basically a clean energy economy. It's probably too early at that time, but it's crazy yeah. how things have changed within a short time. There are companies like that out there. So can you talk more about your story and sure. what made you start another business again? and uh, Sure. Maybe go in more detail.
0: As long as I can remember, I've always been very headstrong. I see an opportunity in my career and I want to go after it, but sometimes not everybody on the team or who you're working for is on the same page or they're distracted and doing other things. So I don't know. I've always had a very strong independent streak. And then when I ended up in Hawaii, I got an exposure to this business. It sort of just started happening. And my sister was working with me at the time and... We just started transacting and it kind of spiraled into this bigger opportunity. And I'd say today it's extremely stressful at times, financial stresses, there's personnel stresses, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I think my favorite thing about having my own company is getting to choose the people I work with.
1: Definitely. I love
0: our team. I mean, we have all the right people in place and yeah, it's a lot of fun. Sure.
1: Definitely. It's all about the people that you work with, even clients as well. And obviously... It's all about the team. It was exciting to kind of hear that you also are working on a new part of your business. It's a logistics business. Can you talk about that more? And
0: Yeah, the two sides of our business of what we do is we work with manufacturers, large EPC companies, even distributors, and we help them with inventory challenges and inventory problems. And so in the course of that business, we're buying and then we're selling to our customers. We have seven warehouses around the country and we do a ton of freight. So we book all the freight for our customers. We pick up, when we buy stuff, we book freight from our suppliers. And so we've kind of built an expertise in moving equipment around and storing it and dealing with all that side. So now we're expanding that to offer that expertise to our suppliers, whether it's finding warehousing, storing equipment on site at a project. Just transporting equipment. We're excited. We're, we're really excited <laughs> about this expansion of our product offerings. Yeah, and I think there's them.
1: a huge opportunity for it because, you know, a lot of people don't really understand it, and it's something that you're anyway doing all yeah. the time. And that's where I feel like you could add a lot of value because people don't really. Yeah, have that experience. And yeah. not many companies are doing that. And
0: it's not very sexy either. So <laughs> yeah. we're able, we can go in and deal with that, the grunt work of moving stuff around and people can focus on what their
1: expertise is. Definitely. That's exciting. Yeah. Good luck with the Thank you. new line of business. That's awesome. Can you talk about this podcast obviously is about entrepreneurship. What suggestions would you have for someone who wants to be an entrepreneur? Like what have you learned From having your own business now, Connect Solar, and then obviously it's been, what, three or four years? Yeah, I
0: think the number one piece of advice I would have given myself at the beginning of this is I always had this impression that you had to go from zero to this big organization doing all these different things with the website and all this stuff. And I've had a lot of failed starts on various businesses, but Connect worked really well because I was able to start with small transactions We started the company, you know, we haven't taken any money and we've been fully bootstrapped. We started with like $10,000 worth of equipment and we'd buy it and we'd sell it and we'd just focus on this one little piece of what we were doing. And, you know, I think in previous attempts to start companies, I'd go in, I'd spend money on a website, I'd start all this marketing (laughs) and it's just not necessary. And then even with Connect, spending money on a website and then you end up switching directions a year later. So I think just staying scrappy and focusing on one little piece of what you do. Also, finding one customer that's willing to pay you for something Sure. And then growing off of that success and then just being patient. (laughs)
1: Definitely is. There's ups and downs of being an entrepreneurship. Some days it feels great, other days you're like, what's going on? Definitely. And I think you mentioned a great point. I feel like everyone feels like they need to have this structure set up. Mm -hmm. But really business is about obviously generating revenue, adding value to your clients. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people get lost in all that other stuff. Yeah. Then really actually focusing on what's important. Like, no business actually closes down because of the lack of revenue.
0: That's true. That's true. So. One of my favorite sayings is, I became an overnight success and it only took 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I love that saying. The other thing is, I think, being humble and having humility. And there's also an urge to come out of the gates and act like you have all the answers. So I think what's worked well for me is relying on my relationships that I've built over the years and going to those relationships and talking about and thinking about doing X. What do you think about that? How could that add value to you? Would you hire that service or product and just really relying on the relationships? I mean, people in general really want to help out, I think.
1: Definitely, I agree. And I think in the industry, it's all about relationships, especially Lauren and I were talking about this before the podcast, like how it's interesting to see how people progress, people move to different companies, but you still have that relationship. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people are willing to help and it's all about adding value. And it's smart to kind of go into the market, basically test like an idea, get great feedback. It's almost like mentorship in a certain sense as well, because I think mentorship has been very important for me as well as developing my business too. So that's actually a pretty interesting point that you made about that. And it's all about another actually great point you made is being humble. You know, mm. when people have their own business sometimes and they want to be successful and they've just started out, they might overpromise and then, yes. you know, underdeliver. And I think even if you're an established business owner and just mm-hmm. in general, it's all about being humble and ego. Because once you let your ego control what you're doing too much, there's a good chance of failure because you stop yeah. listening. There's actually a great book, Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday, which talks about how you should control your ego and be extremely humble. And since we're in Boston, Bill Belichick, the head coach of the Patriots, had actually all his players read the book. And it's an amazing book that I've read and talks about stoicism as well, controlling your emotions Yep, because it's your own business. It's so emotional, but when you're out in front of the public eye and yeah. things like that, it's about controlling.
0: Yep, and being strong for your team. I yeah. think about stoicism all the time. It's a work in progress. <laughs> I think it's a lifetime <laughs> work in progress.
1: Me as well with stoicism. And I don't know if you've heard of Marcus Aurelius, but he's like an emperor. A Roman emperor, Tim Ferriss, actually talks about him a lot. And actually, Tim Ferriss published the Ryan Holiday books. I know we were talking about the Tim Ferriss yeah. podcast before. Also, it's interesting because I just kind of went into a book suggestion and that was kind of precluding because you were now currently reading a book and, you know, wanted to get your book recommendations because I'm always looking for great books to read. And can you talk about?
0: The three books that I have going right now is The Grid is really good. And that was on the Bill Gates 2016 reading list. It's about kind of the fraying energy infrastructure of America and how... Little, a lot of things have changed, but they're changing now. So I think that's a great book. And then I've been focusing a lot on business books lately. There's a book called Traction that I had my entire executive team read. And it's a way to organize your company, stay on track, set goals and, and accomplish the goals and build culture. And then the other book I've, sure. I've been reading lately is called uh, Never Split the Difference, it's about negotiating. Oh, yes, I saw that yep.
1: book as well.
0: I forgot the author, but it's about basically negotiating, and he was a top FBI hostage negotiator, and then he takes what he's learned in the field on saving lives in exchange for money on into basically business negotiations, but just life negotiations also.
1: Definitely, that's yep. interesting. I've heard great things about that book and then The Grid is actually by Gretchen Bach as well. We'll actually put these books in the notes of the podcast so that our listeners know where to read it. I have actually one question for you. Being a woman-owned business in the solar industry, it's pretty rare and just in general, surprisingly, solar is very male-dominated. Can you talk about challenges or adversity that you face having... I mean, when I think about women leading solar companies, the other person that comes up to me is Lynn from the residential solar financier and installer. Can you talk about your experiences as a female entrepreneur in a new industry that's mm-hmm. growing exponentially and then also that's not that diverse as well? Yeah,
0: long? so I've always worked in male-dominated industries from my days at Lehman to when I was at Clean Edison, that was a very contractor-dominated industry. And now at solar, yeah, there's just not a ton of women, but I think it's been a great experience for me. I think being a female in a very male-dominated industry, it sets you apart. I walked into the lobby of the hotel at this conference yesterday, and it's like a sea (laughs) of suits. Everyone's basically wearing one of three outfits. It's a blazer, it's either gray or blue, and slacks, and they all just kind of like blend in. So I think being a female, it gives you an advantage right away, just as far as being memorable. And then a lot of it is attitude. Everyone's been very supportive around me, my partners, the people I work with. And I think it's been a positive for me. I think sure. a lot of it is your attitude as well. You know, occasionally you'll get comments, especially the after parties, the conference, to get alcohol involved. But I think you just got to like let it roll off your back. And if you hold on to that and think about how it's setting you back or whatever, like, I think that starts to become a reality. But in general, I mean, I think we have a great industry with great people. And I looked at it as a positive Definitely, and
1: I think that's a great point, having a thick skin and letting things, not really kind of thinking about it and just doing what you're doing, which is adding value to the industry. And I know you have longstanding relationships with a lot of you know yeah. great companies. And I apologize, it was Lynn Juresh from uh, Sunrun. She's the oh, co-founder I need to meet her. <laughs> and CEO of Sunrun. Maybe we'll reach out to her. So what's the best way for people to reach out to you or connect solar what would you recommend uh, is the best way to communicate online?
0: Let's see. I'm on LinkedIn. So I look at LinkedIn every single day. So that's a great way. I guess we have an info at connect solar. It's K I N E C T solar.com. So we follow that also. I love connecting with people in the industry and hearing what they're doing. And solar is so great because it's still really a new industry and there's so many new technologies and ideas around. So I'm always thrilled to connect with people and hear what they're doing and if I can be helpful in any way. Recently, we had a customer who purchased some flexible solar modules and he's actually putting it on the top of containers for like refrigeration and stuff. Oh, wow. So I mean, just there's so much cool stuff going on.
1: I mean, it's crazy. There's so much creativity happening Mm -hmm. in the industry. I can't even keep up. Like so many people are asking about different things that they're seeing in solar in a lot of different uses. So Mm -hmm. it's just a really exciting industry. And I think, you know, everyone in the industry is pretty progressive, obviously they're pro-environment and you know, are trying to figure out creative ways to continue to basically have one of the fastest growing industries, basically in the US and the world. I mean, even though with the tariffs and all the things that happened last year, you know, growth did slow, but the future is definitely bright for solar.
0: It is, it is. <laughs>
1: this was an amazing interview, Lauren. I appreciate your time today coming this morning and look forward to having you again on the podcast real soon. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Benoit. Great, thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community and that's what we're all about right now. Building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can.